Welcome to Upwelling. I'm Michelle Blackwell. Upwelling brings the richness of local literature to the airwaves. Today I will interview local author Emily Lloyd-Jones about her recent releases, The Drowned Woods and Unseen Magic. My second guest is Lake County Poet Laureate Georgina Marie Guardado. We'll start with The Drowned Woods, which takes us back to the realm of Anuvin, during the era of Tilwith Tag, that we first met in her 2019 release, The Bone House. We travel with humans that are other-touched, spies, mercenaries, and thieves as we seek the magical powers that protect the kingdom, Gwaylod. Unseen Magic was released in February. It is a lighthearted story of adventure in the Redwood Forest where tea shops appear and disappear and ravens watch over the populace for a price. Emily Lloyd-Jones lives on the Mendocino Coast. She has published six novels for young adult audiences and one for middle grade. She grew up frolicking in the forest of Oregon before becoming enthralled with the Redwood Forest of Northern California. Thank you, Emily. Thank you. Glad to be here. Emily will read a selection from the drowned woods. The third time a customer grabbed her, Mare considered drowning him. It was an idle thought, the way a gardener might have pruned a weed or a painter covered a smudge. It would have been a simple thing. A twitch of her fingers could have drawn the ale from his mouth into his lungs. Everyone would say it was such a shame that Reese had choked on his own tongue. But someone might realize how strange it was for a man to drown on dry land. It was that chance that stayed Mare's hand. That and killing him would be wrong, on principle. She yanked her arm free. Reese, she said, her voice icy, I told you to wait. I'll have your order in a moment. Reese gazed at her from across the bar. He slouched over his drink, eyes glazed. He had broken blood vessels at the corners of his nose, sunspots along his cheeks, and a mean cunning in his eyes. Mare had known men like him before, dissatisfied with their lot in life, so they snarled at those who had little recourse. "'I've been waiting for hours,' he said. "'You haven't finished your last drink yet,' she replied, glancing down. Reese followed her gaze, squinting at the tankard between his hands." The scythe and boot was always bustling during the evening hours. Many a crop-cutter or traveler would stop by the tavern for a cup of ale and a bit of gossip before ambling home. Mare nimbly carried several drinks to a table of off-duty soldiers, keeping her head down and gaze averted. Sorry for the wait, she said quietly. Think nothing of it, lass. The one who spoke was a woman. She had the calloused hands of someone who spent years holding a sword. You look as though you could use a cup yourself. Mare wiped the sweat from her brow with a forearm, then touched her fingers to her hair to make sure it was still in place. She kept her hair long, carefully arranged, so that it covered the corner of her left eye. The air was thick with steam and the scent of lamb cowl. It was served in chipped bowls, most of them scavenged from abandoned homes. More and more of those who lived near the borders of Gwaylod were fleeing, leaving behind that which they could not carry. More for us, Karis had once said. She was a sturdy woman, with thick forearms and hair cropped short. No one quite knew how she had managed to take ownership of the tavern, but none dared question her. Mare had arrived three months ago with only a few coins in her purse and blisters on her heel. She had come to the scythe and boot looking to rent one of the upstairs rooms for a night. She'd stayed for three before Karis asked her if she had naught elsewhere to go. And when Mare couldn't answer... Karis pushed two full tankards of ale into Mare's hands and said, "'Table in the far right corner.' Mare had stayed. She served drinks and swept floors. Her pay wasn't much, but she was given an upstairs room as compensation. The scythe and boot had once been a barn, and the rough wooden walls were still studded with metal hooks for tack and hinges where stall doors had penned in animals. The place smelled of damp hay, and when the wind howled in from the west— the building made odd whistling sounds. But Mare liked it. The tavern felt like the closest thing she'd had to a home in years. Or it would have felt like a home, if not for the drunkards. Reese reached for her, a fourth time, and Mare ducked out of his grasp, resisting the urge to seize his wrist and bend it back. All right, all right, she said, taking his tankard and carrying it to one of the full casks. She refilled it, then slid it back to him. Reese gave her a watery glare. About time. You're paid to serve this swill. Don't let Karis hear you say that, said Mare. 
She grabbed an old cloth rag and began wiping down the bar, her gaze sweeping across the tavern. There were the soldiers, a group of merchants, and two men dicing in the corner. Everyone had food and drinks, and they looked content. She had a moment to catch her breath. Mare walked into the kitchens. At once, the smell of fat on the griddle made her stomach ache with hunger. A young man stood in the small kitchen, sleeves rolled up to his elbows, and dark hair gone curly in the steam. Elgar was quiet and kept to himself, but he could throw together a meal out of nothing but a handful of flour and leftover vegetables. "'What are you making?' Mare asked, setting her tray down. "'Leek and oat cakes,' said Elgar. He picked up a bowl, full of batter, and began to pour dollops on the hot griddle stone. "'You think they'll sell?' "'I think we'll have customers starting fights over them,' she said. Elgar threw a shy smile over his shoulder. "'Shall I bring them out now?' asked Mare. Elgar nodded. "'They're best warm. Oh, and I left you a plate on the table, over there. A few of the cakes and some of the lamb bones I used for the cowl. I thought you might want them.' "'You think I like to knob bones?' asked Mare, leaning against the counter. "'I saw you feeding the dog near Heth's farm,' said Elgar, flushing. "'It was true.' She had been bringing scraps to an old sheepdog that lived in the barn nearby. The family that used to live there had been taken by illness, and no one seemed to remember the sweet sheepdog. Mare had seen the hound wandering the fields, and the next time she had taken a walk, Mare brought scraps of meat too grisly for the stew. The dog would only take the food if Mare put it on the ground and backed away. Since then, Mare had visited every day to bring more. Every time, the dog had been a little friendlier, and Mare hoped that soon the sheepdog might allow her close. Mare liked animals. There was a simplicity to them. In innocence, she never found in people. "'Why not take the hound for yourself?' asked Elgar. "'No one would mind. Even Karis would agree, although she'd probably spend a good fortnight blustering on about it.' Mare let out a breath. "'I am not suited to take care of a dog.' "'You are taking care of her,' said Elgar, pointing a wooden spoon at her. Not forever, said Mare, just until she had to run again. Someone else takes a shine to her. Thank you very much. We first meet one of your main characters, Mare, as a child. Mare has power over water. She's a diviner. And the townspeople suspect that she is other-touched. Her magic comes to the attention of the prince. He takes her away from her parents at age eight to be trained by one of his master spies. Later, we meet her as the young adult, and she has taken her life into her own hands after she realizes the prince's nefarious designs on her power. Mare is a strong female character who doesn't shy away from adventure and danger. Her special powers help, but she has a weakness that can render them moot. Why was it important to start the novel with a strong female hero? Well, since the novel is technically a heist, I needed a main character that was physically strong enough and had practice with illegal ventures. It helps when you're dealing with a character who has done this kind of thing in the past, so having her included in this kind of plot made sense. Also, I just really like writing about headstrong, prickly girls. It's just... I've loved reading about them since I was a child, and writing my own was always just so much fun. Renfrew, the master spy who took her from her parents, becomes a father figure to her, but there are trust issues. How did you thread the needle between fatherly power and mistrust? As writers, we often look back at our past works and realize that there are often recurring themes that we didn't notice before. And after writing The Drowned Woods, I realized... I have written a trickster mentor into almost every single one of my books. I love tricksters. I love tales of people who are intelligent and solve problems through means in which the answers aren't always obvious. And I like that little edge of distrust where you're not sure about someone's motives. So I like taking my main characters and often giving them mentors where they're giving good advice but you don't know why they're giving it or if it's going to serve them or you. I think particularly for Mare, who has trust issues, giving her a mentor that isn't entirely there for all the reasons he says he is was a very fun thing to play around with. Mare's mother is mostly absent from the book. Why? Well, both of her parents are very absent from the book. I did consider making her mentor a woman in the beginning. I played around with a few different ideas. In the end, Renfrew was a man, mostly because I was doing a James Bond marathon at the time I was outlining this book and kind of just saw Daniel Craig emerging from the waves and went, huh, 
huh, I wonder if he became a spy master, like what would happen? So that was what inspired Renfrew's physical appearance. Why didn't Mare search out her original family when she ran away from the prince's service? My original thought was maybe she would, but I immediately discounted that because that's the first place anyone would look for her. As someone who's on the run, she had to go underground, or in this case, work with other people who were wanted from the law. This novel is a prequel to The Bone House, which also has a strong female lead. Are both stories based on Welsh folklore? They are. I've read a bunch of Welsh folk tales. The Drowned Woods is actually based on the old folk tale of Contraer Gwaelod, which translates to the Lowland Hundred. There's always been tales about how the Cardigan Bay of Wales was created, and one of the tales included a magical well and a young woman who was instructed to safekeep that well. And the tales differ on what exactly went wrong. There's everything from she saw a handsome man and got distracted to she was sabotaged in some way, but she failed in her duties and the kingdom was flooded and there went the Lowland Hundred and Cardigan Bay now exists there. There actually is a teensy bit of potential evidence to prove that there actually was forest there. They found some fossilized forests in the water a few years back, which people are very excited about. I bet that would be quite the excitement if it could prove truth to some of the tale. So do you have Welsh heritage? I do. My grandfather on my dad's side was from North Wales. If you know anything about last names, you know Lloyd-Jones is very, very Welsh. I visited Wales when I was doing research for the Bone Houses, and until I opened my mouth, everyone thought I was a local when I was making reservations. <laughs> then they heard me talk and were like, yeah, you're American. <laughs> How did you become interested in the Welsh folklore? One of the very first book series that I really got into when I was a kid was the Chronicles of Prydane, written by Lloyd Alexander, which was also very heavily steeped in Welsh mythology. That initially sparked my interest in it, and I ended up reading all of the original myths in the Mabinogion and looking into old folklore, and it's just, it's a very rich history, and there's a lot to delve into. So when I originally wanted to write a fantasy, I went back to the Welsh roots and looked at them, and there was just so much to draw from. I could be writing books about this particular mythology until, like, I'm 80, and there would still be more to draw from. Any of your characters' versions of yourself or people you know? They are not. I draw a hard line between my fictional life and my in-person life, mostly because I don't want to make anyone mad, but also I like exploring aspects of people that I don't meet in real life. Books are great because I don't have to experience the things I'm going through in real life. I can completely lose myself in some fictional person's problems. I can have a magical corgi. I can have cauldrons that raise the dead. It's just, it's so much fun to have an escape that is just completely separate from waking up and, you know, doing the dishes. One of your other characters is Fane. Fane's tragic childhood causes him to seek out the magic of the other folk. He ends up becoming their servant and ruse the day he accepted the power they gave him. Yet he does his duty, which is surprising to Mare, who, one could argue, abandoned hers. Why not make him a rebel too? I like the contrast between Mare and Fane, because Fane as a character is very much defined by his role and everyone around him. He originally considers himself the son of a locksmith, which he was. Then he considers himself an orphan, which he was. And then he considers himself an iron fetch because he ends up working for the fairies, fetching iron out of their mountains. So he always thinks of himself as his job. And for Mare, she was born a water diviner. She's always had magic. So for her, it's always been part of her identity and she's never really had to think about it. So Mare's priorities are not about her duty or what she's going to do. It's mostly about staying alive. Whereas Fane is very much duty-bound to continue being the thing that everyone around him thinks he should be. Emily's going to read a second selection from The Drowned Woods. So this is from Chapter 2. Grimacing, Mare tugged on her chains. If she had a piece of metal, she might be able to pick the lock on her cuffs. But there was a soft sound outside. She would never have heard it if she had not been trained to listen. There was a footfall that did not belong to a soldier... There was no telltale clank of armor, nor whisper of chainmail links rubbing against one another. Mare's breaths came faster, her body attuned to the sudden absence of noise. The guards standing outside had gone utterly silent. 
No grumblings, no shuffling on his feet, nothing at all. She shifted, using her legs to press her back up against the wagon's wall. It was all she could do to ready herself. The wagon door swung open, and Renfrew stepped inside. Mare let the tension fall from her shoulders. Renfrew, Marayrid, he said chidingly. Look at you, all trussed up like some hen that stopped laying and is ready for the stew. Not quite ready, she replied. I thought not. Renfrew had to duck a little as he walked inside the wagon. He settled on the bench across from her, like it was a comfortable chair, and not the place many a prisoner had been chained. How have they treated you? As well as to be expected, she said. No water, nor food. I'm to be taken to the prince. Yes, he replied. Yes, you would be. As would I, if I hadn't left the guard outside. Indisposed? She wondered how he had done it. Perhaps a choke or a drugged cloth to the nose. Renfrew had many skills at his disposal, and while death was among them, it was not his only tool. This would have been easier if it were. Are you here to kill me, then? she asked. It would be a mercy. I know it would, said Renfrew, and his voice was compassion and understanding. It made her hackles rise. The prince would bind you to his service. You are merely a tool to be used or discarded at his leisure and I fear I was the whetstone used to sharpen you. She blinked a few times, startled speechless. Of all the things she thought Renfrew might say to her, a half-apology was not among them. Renfrew did not apologize. He was whisper and steel, poison and shadow. He did terrible things and knew no regret. She wasn't even sure if he was capable of feeling it. Why, she finally said, why did you come here? Why did you look for me? To your inn or this wagon? Both, she said. A faint smile tugged at one corner of his mouth. I came for the reasons I told you. Because you are the last water diviner, and I have need of one. You need a water diviner, she said. I need you, he said. You were the best. Even when you were barely taller than my knee, you were the most talented, the... If you think to earn my loyalty through compliments, she said, I should warn you. It won't work. He laughed. It was sharp and quiet. I know, and I do not seek your loyalty, only your skills. All the mirth vanished from his face. He set elbows to knees and leaned forward. I have a job. You said that before, Mare replied. But you never said what. We are going to break the prince's power. All of the words died on her lips. She tried to draw in a breath, but even that wouldn't come. It took three tries before she could inhale, and a fourth before she could utter a word. "'Are you jesting?' "'I am not,' he replied. "'I am utterly sincere. The prince has stood untested long enough.' "'That's not possible,' she said. "'The prince, he cannot be overthrown.' "'Why?' said Renfrew, in the same tone he'd used when teaching her lessons. Mare looked at him incredulously. "'Because the walls of Gwaelod are impenetrable.' They are magic, other-touched as I am, a bargain from King Aron himself, traded with Garonhir's great-grandfather. And what if I told you, said Renfrew, that I had found a way to thwart those walls? I'd say you were reaching, even for you. Mare shifted, her chains grinding against one another as she tried to adjust her posture. Her legs were aching with cold. Armies have tried to breach those walls, to climb them, to tunnel under them. Nothing has worked. There is a well, said Renfrew quietly, in the heart of the kingdom. It feeds magic into those walls. It's been hidden within Gwaelod for over a hundred years. It keeps those lands safe, and without its magic, the kingdom would lose that protection. A well, said Mare, unable to hide her skepticism. That's what feeds the magic? If it's so simple, why hasn't anyone tried to take the magic? Because Garonhir's family has guarded the secret. And people have tried, said Renfrew. But none have succeeded. Oh, she licked her dry lips. I get the feeling you're about to say I plan to be the first. I will be, said Renfrew. Because I have one thing the others did not. All of the pieces fell into place, and Mare finally understood why Renfrew had gone to such lengths to find her. Oh well. A magical well. You have a water diviner, she said. Renfrew's eyes gleamed. 
I don't know. Do I? She felt entrapped by his words, as if their entire exchange had been an elaborately woven web. He could ensnare her just as easily as these physical chains. She thought of returning to care with no, and her stomach clenched. This is the moment, said Mare, that you will make your bargain. My release traded for my services. Renfrew shook his head. No, Mare. I will release you from those chains, whether or not you choose to aid me. Should you run, I will not stop you. But if you decide to join my cause, his eyes flashed like blue fire. Within the well are treasures. Come with me. We'll steal the magic, the gold, and you will have enough coin to settle far beyond the reach of Gwaylad. She wanted to argue. This all seemed far-fetched, straining credulity. The prince and his kin had ruled for over a hundred years from the safety of Ker Withno. It was difficult to imagine anyone ever unseating the prince from his throne. We are the agents of order, Renfrew had once told her. We restore things to how they should be. We win wars with the least amount of spilled blood. A soldier would have to hack his way through hundreds of enemies to reach a noble. But we do so with forged papers, a quick smile, and a dose of poison, and only one life lost. There had once been a time that she believed in him, and looking into Renfrew's face, she wanted to believe in him again. If I do this, she said, one last job, then it is truly the last. I will not work for you again, and I need enough coin to escape. A fierce victory flashed through Renfrew's eyes, but he did not smile. It looked more like a grim triumph. Agreed, he said quietly. So are we to journey to care with now? Not quite yet, said Renfrew. First, I intend to hire a little muscle. A former spymaster and a diviner are all well and good, but if we were to survive this, we'll need a few strong arms. Might be easier to help if these were gone, she rattled the shackles, ready to be done with a bite of iron. Renfrew's smile, when it finally came, had the curve of a wicked blade. He reached into his pocket and withdrew a ring of stolen keys. Oh, that's great. Absolutely great. Ivana... We meet her midway through the book. Her historical relationship with Mare is fraught with betrayal, but there is this underlying current of deep love. Mare overcomes Ivana's betrayal. Is forgiveness an important theme in your novels? It is. I feel like this book in particular, the idea of forgiving those around you and particularly forgiving yourself for past mistakes is a recurring theme. All of the main characters have done some pretty terrible things, whether through ignorance or through deliberate action. And a big part of the book is them either learning how to take responsibility for those things or trying to make amends for them. Ivana is the honorable thief, heir to a dynasty. Like Fane, she puts duty above self. Why are Mare's closest allies both duty-bound yet unable to resist the pull of her rebellious nature? I mean, doesn't everyone love a rebel? <laughs> There's a reason Han Solo is the most popular Star Wars character. Uh, I feel like also Mare in particular is just one of those characters that enjoys her freedom and makes freedom look like such a tempting offer that those who are duty-bound are often drawn to her. In some cases, it works out. In others, like Ivana, it does not. You're listening to Upwelling. I'm Michelle Blackwell. We will return to an interview with Emily Lloyd-Jones about her 2022 middle grade release, Unseen Magic. But before we go, let's listen to the song I picked for her August release, The Drowned Woods, Only the Ocean, by Jack Johnson. Now we're going to talk about the second book that you had come out this year. Uh, quite a prolific writer, I might add. It's called Unseen Magic, and it was released in February. It is your first middle grade book. The other books are young adult. Before we go on forward with that, let's just explain what is the difference between middle grade and young adult. So middle grade is for kids around the ages of 8 to 12 versus young adult, which is typically between 13 to 18. Unseen Magic is set in the Redwood Forest in an imaginary town off Highway 101. It's a delightful story that dips into some heavy modern-day traumas. Finn and her mother have escaped Finn's father and are hiding in Aldermere. Aldermere holds many secrets, including a disappearing tea shop and ravens that watch over the community in exchange for food. 
There are magical creatures and hidden passageways that can lead to unexpected places. The townsfolk live with the magic and try to protect it from the very same tourists they rely on for their living. But the magic is in danger. So next, Emily's going to read a passage from the book. Finn hadn't always lived in Aldermere. Bakersfield, San Diego, Barstow. The details were all tangled up in her memories. Rough old carpets, the smell of neighbors smoking, and the sound of her mom sliding the chain lock home. Her mother worked in shops or restaurants, and they never stayed too long in one place. Sometimes Finn wondered if her mother was an ex-spy. It would explain why they were always moving, why mom kept glancing over her shoulder. Before Aldermere, a year and a half was the longest they'd stayed in one location, renting a place in Modesto. For a while, there hadn't been the chaotic jumble of boxes in the car's back seat, nor the paperwork of getting Finn into yet another school, nor Mom coming into her bedroom at three in the morning, telling her to put on shoes. They had left their last apartment when the moon was half full. Finn remembered dragging her small suitcase behind her, hefting it into the car's trunk, her mind still fogged with sleep. Her memories were a jumble of trees in the headlights, the taste of orange juice they bought from a gas station, and the soft fuzz of the radio as they left all the other stations behind. Finn had known almost nothing about Aldermere, only that it was a tiny town just east of the Redwood Highway. It was shrouded in an old-growth Redwood forest, far from any cities. Northern California was a different world, all narrow, twisting roads and red bark trees that smelled like spice. They drove for so long it seemed they might simply drive off the edge of the earth. Mom, who had grown up in Aldermere, had only ever mentioned it in whispers at bedtime, when Finn begged her for stories. They always sounded like wild fairy tales. Mom and her Aunt Myrtle, traipsing through forests, crossing rivers on abandoned train tracks, finding keys and strange teeth and creeks. Finn's grandparents had lived and died in Aldermere, leaving Aunt Myrtle their home. But Mom and Finn had never visited, not for holidays or birthdays or summers. But now, now they were. They were going to Aldermere. Finn, darling, Mom had said. Where we're going, there are a few things you should know. A few rules. Finn was used to rules. Most of the places they stayed didn't allow pets or loud music. But these rules were different. Doors must be labeled or they can lead anywhere. Pay the ravens or keep your garbage bins inside. Never keep a knife that has tasted your blood. Always drop a bread crust into Bowers Creek before going into the water. Don't use the old toll bridge north of town. There is a price, but no one knows what it is. Burn nothing within the town borders. The rules had a wicked, lulling cadence like that of a lullaby, the kind her mother used to spin out when Finn couldn't sleep. And most important, said Mom, don't look for the tea shop. What tea shop? asked Finn, confused. Aldermere can be dangerous, Finn, was all Mom would say. Don't ever let your guard down. Finn fell into silence and watched as the car's headlights shone upon a green road sign. Aldermere. Population, 239. As the car took a right turn, the headlights illuminated a deer standing on the grassy highway shoulder. It was a small, graceful doe. Finn had never seen one in the wild, and she pressed herself closer to the window to get a better look. But as her eyes focused on the deer, Finn's heartbeat quickened. The deer's shadow looked wrong. It had the shadow of a much larger creature, one that stood on two legs and had thick, curved antlers like those of a moose. Its arms ended in long, jagged points. Finn blinked. It had to be the headlights distorting the deer's form, she told herself. But before she could look again, the lights slid away. The deer vanished into the dark. The car jounced, the pavement rough and uneven. Finn found herself clutching at her seatbelt as they pulled up to a driveway. Despite the late hour, Myrtle Elloway had greeted them at the front door. Finn had never met her Aunt Myrtle, but there had been a trail of birthday cards, flecked with glitter, usually with a $20 bill tucked inside. Aunt Myrtle wore a fuzzy robe belted at her waist, and she held a steaming mug. To Finn's surprise, the older woman handed the mug to her. It smelled like warm milk, vanilla, and nutmeg. The mug also had a chip in its handle, and that made Finn feel more comfortable. People didn't give chipped mugs to guests, only to family. 
You're late, Aunt Myrtle said to Mom. I didn't even know we were coming until yesterday, replied Mom. How did you? She hadn't called ahead, Finn realized. A swell of shame rose up in her belly. She didn't want to be somewhere where they weren't wanted. She wouldn't learn the word imposition until a year later. But even then, she knew what it meant. Never mind that, said Aunt Myrtle. Come inside. Finn saw little of the house in the dark. All she glimpsed were wooden floors and the gleam of sea glass dangling from the ceiling. They were bustled in and out of the house and across an overgrown lawn. And all the while, Aunt Myrtle talked. What are you now, eight? She was saying. Finn nodded. Good, my son's nine. He'll be glad to have someone new around. Do you like to draw, paint? A small cottage sat within the fringes of the forest. It was wide at the base and came to a point at the roof. The wood was dark, trimmed with white paint, and there was a porch without a railing. The whole thing looked rustic and strangely inviting. It looked like someone's home. Aunt Myrtle unlocked the front door and handed the key to Mom. Thank you, Mom whispered. I won't. It'll only be a few weeks. Aunt Myrtle raised a hand, as if to wave away Mom's words. It's fine, if you decide to stay. The neighbor's a metalsmith. I can ask her to make a new sign for the door. I'm sorry, Mom said quietly. I know you didn't want me to come back. Aunt Myrtle made a disgusted sound. It wasn't you I didn't want here. Again, a flutter of fear rose up in Finn's belly. Me, she thought. She must have been the one that Aunt Myrtle hadn't wanted. That was why they'd never visited. To distract herself, Finn looked at the metal nameplate beside the guest door. Guest house, it read. Beneath the plate, someone had stapled a small sheet of paper. The drawing looked as though it had been done by someone Finn's age. There was a house and two stick-figure people beside it, smiling widely. And beneath the drawing were the words, Angelina and Finley's home. Finn had wanted to believe it. That's very touching. Finn, she's full of anxiety. She self-examines and overthinks everything. Her clone in the story is everything she is not. Did you write this book to help kids with anxiety? I did. I was a very anxious kid and remain a somewhat anxious adult. And in all of the books I read, the heroes would always be fearless. And I remember thinking I could never be a hero because I was never going to be fearless. So writing this book was very much a love letter to myself at that age and to all the kids who have grown up with strange fears or don't know why they're nervous about some things. And the more I grew up, the more I realized that a lot of people feel this way. So this is my way to kind of reach out to the younger generation. The book has a Nancy Drew sort of adventure feel to it. Did you read the Nancy Drew stories when you were Finn's age? Nancy Drew was very, very popular with a bunch of my classmates. I never actually read them, I'm embarrassed to say. I've never read Nancy Drew. When I was Finn's age, I was reading a lot of books about girls riding horses and having adventures. I remember reading The Saddle Club and a bunch of those. And I was also reading a bunch of high fantasy, which I mentioned before, the Chronicles of Prydain. But as I've grown older, I always really liked small town cozy mysteries. So this was sort of my small town cozy mystery for kids. Were you inspired by the mystery spot when you developed the town of Aldermere? I actually wasn't. I've never been there. I keep mentioning that I need to finally visit. But Aldermere was inspired by a few things, which was my experience living in small communities. I've grown up in areas where everyone knew each other. I've lived in big cities. And small towns always just have an identity all their own. There's a sense of community, gossip, conflict. And I love books where the setting is so vivid, it could almost be a character. So when I was sitting down to write this book, I was thinking, this definitely has to be a small town. And second, I've always loved the idea that magic could be hidden if you just knew how to find it. Like, if you just knew the right place to look or the right time of day, you could uncover magic. So the idea of a small town that was magical, that really appealed to me. And the last part is, if someplace was magical, how would you hide it? My first thought was, make it a tourist trap. <laughs> no one's going to look for magic at, like, you know, a gas station or a place that sells stuffed Bigfoot toys or something. So... The idea of taking a place that was magical and being like, oh, this place is weird. We're going to capitalize on that. Just it made me laugh. I think that most of us who live up here near the Redwood Forest understand that it has its sort of built in magic. Are there more stories of Redwood Forest magic in our future? There are. The sequel to Unseen Magic, it's called Unspoken Magic, will publish next February. So 
I'm very excited about that one. It contains a lot of what I loved about the first book, which is, you know, mysteries that you're not quite sure of, a few more monsters, and of course, like kids having adventures trying to solve all the town's problems, because the adults are always useless in these books. <laughs> you're listening to Upwelling. I'm Michelle Blackwell. Next, I will interview Lake County Poet Laureate Georgina Marie Guardado. But first, let's listen to a song I selected for Unseen Magic, Raven Simone's Some Call It Magic. Let's talk about your writing process and your other books. How often do you write? I write a few times a week. I know I should be saying every day, but the thing about being a writer that no one thinks about is you are essentially a small business owner. I spend a good chunk of my week doing things like editing, social media, website upkeep, uh, marketing, all of that fun stuff, budgeting, writing. I do typically either in the mornings or in the evenings, because that is when my brain seems to be at its sharpest. There's something about the shift in daytime that just awakens the creative spirit for me. So I will sit down to write in the mornings, usually between 8 a.m. to like noon, and then I'll take a few hours and work on something else, like answer emails or that kind of thing. And then the evening, typically, once the sun starts setting, which now is like around 8 in the afternoon, uh, that's when I can sit down and work on creative stuff again. Do you have a dedicated space that you use regularly? I do have a desk area. And one of my things I did over the last two years during the pandemic was make that desk area actually pretty and functional for the first time ever. But then I immediately took that desk area and turned it into my gaming computer area. So no, I typically write either on my couch or in a reclining chair. And I do move around the house a little bit because I've noticed that if I sit in one place as I'm working, I tend to get stagnant. So keeping things shifting and moving helps me not get writer's block. Do you write it all, then go back and edit, or do you edit as you go? I do typically edit as I go. It is both a gift and a curse because I take a little bit longer to finish my drafts because if I notice something is wrong and needs to be tweaked, I will go back and fix it. The upside is though, when I finish a draft, it is very, very clean. So I don't have to do too much editing once I'm done. How did you get your start as a writer? <laughs> I feel like most of us who are writers always just think back to reading books, loving books, and being like, wait, I could do this at some point. For me, I ended up writing and publishing my first book when I was around 26. And that was Elusive, which was a superhero adventure story, which is about as far as you can get from Welsh mythology. I ended up just working at the bookshop in Mendocino, which was great. And I learned a lot about stories and how to pitch stories and the book world as I was working on my books. Now I'm a full-time writer and it's been a lot of fun. Is everything that you've published published through Little Brown and Company? Little Brown has handled all of my young adult books. My middle grade books, Unseen Magic and Unspoken Magic, are with HarperCollins. And I also have a short story called a drop of stolen ink in a anthology that was published by Macmillan. Does your publisher handle the copy editing and marketing as well as production and distribution? Yes, that is the upside of being traditionally published. I have nothing but respect for self-published writers because it is so much work and I can't imagine doing it all myself. Luckily, I have editors that handle everything from copy editing to proofreading to the book layout to all the artwork because I definitely couldn't do that myself. How did you find an agent or did your agent find you and have you always had the same one? I was the traditional author that ended up writing the book, looking up agents, writing a query letter, submitting queries, and just going that route. I have had a few different agents because business relationships and needs change throughout the years. So my current agent I've been with for uh, about two and a half years. Do you have a favorite young adult or middle grade author or series you'd also recommend to our listeners? have so many. <laughs> right now I'm reading an excellent middle grade book called Ravenfall. So if you like the Ravens and Unseen Magic, I would definitely recommend. It's by Kaylin Josephson. As for young adult, I'm really enjoying, okay, this is not a young adult book, but is I feel like it have a lot of appeal to young adult readers. It's called The Undertaking of Heart and Mercy. It is a fantasy rom-com it's by Megan Bannon, and it's just so much fun, and I'm really liking it. Where can people buy The Drowned Woods or Unseen Magic locally, as well as for those who pick up the podcast from out of the area? Locally, you can pick up signed copies at Gallery Bookshop in Mendocino. 
And if you are not local, you can still order from them online, which is always great. But also, they're available pretty much wherever books are sold. Uh, both The Drowned Woods and Unseen Magic do have audio versions. So if you want to listen to them in addition to read them, that's available too. Thank you, Emily. I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. Of course, glad to be here. Georgina Marie Guardado is the first Mexican-American poet laureate in Lake County, a title she will hold until 2024. She is a poet laureate fellow with the Academy of American Poets and coordinates the Youth Laureate Program for the Lake County Arts Council. She's a scholar at the Napa Valley Writers Conference and received the rewritten scholarship in 2021. Georgina also serves on the board for the Mendocino Coast Writers Conference. Her work has been published in multiple anthologies, and she is working on a full-length book as we speak. Thank you, Georgina, for joining us on Upwelling today. Thank you so much. Georgina's going to read her first poem, Praise Be the Sheep of Continuity. So this first poem was written last year at the Napa Valley Writers Conference after I studied with Victoria Chang, who's an incredible poet. Praise be the shape of continuity. And it has an epigraph, an arena of yellow eyes watched the changing shape he cut by Sylvia Plath. Praise be the shape of continuity. That after the sharp metal crash briefly cut into the shape of nature, all of my bones remained intact. That after the silver collision of man-made machine with cedar hollow hair, life and lung were granted a continuance, mine at the least. That when the blinding of ice-white headlights met sable buck eyes and agonizing stillness, I couldn't look away. I saw grace in life, tragedy in violent death. That since birth I still don't know if there is a god, Yet the heavens, if you call it, didn't care. That empathy riddles my bones and it hurts like hell, as most lessons do. That when the officer said he was gone, an antler missing, I mourned the coronet, purling, main beam of his anatomy. That making spirit contracts with four-legged creatures makes me feel less alone, but their deaths burn. That the moon glint on a still body pained to no end so that dog death, sister death, dear death, sprouted me a golden backbone. That silhouetted beings in the night could have been watching, could have swooped down, torn my words, scratched and clawed straight through larynx. That life is a dance to avoid orifice and oathful. That the length of trauma covets a shorter way out. Thank you, Georgina. That was absolutely lovely. I just love it when I can hear people read their own poetry because you really get a sense of the feeling that's in it. So let's start with some questions about you and how you have time to do your poetry. Lake County has a large Latinx and Native population. How did it feel to be the first Latinx poet laureate to represent this population? Mm -hmm. I am the first Mexican-American poet laureate, which is something I'm proud of because we do have a good Latinx population in Lake County, especially with migrant workers who work our pear fields and whatnot. So I feel like the Latinx population is certainly a part of the backbone of Lake County. So to be the first Mexican-American poet laureate of Lake County was really special to me and to hold the term for four years, which is also a first in Lake County. Um, I'm also Mojave Indian on my father's side also have some German and Irish and Spanish, so kind of a mix of all these different races. And especially in this climate, I think when we have so much going on in terms of racial injustice, it's really a good, a positive thing to have someone who is mixed race kind of at the helm and trying to bridge gaps and bring in more examples of inclusivity. Poetry is personal and it's also universal. How does your work help you or others deal with the larger problems we have in the world? I feel like this brings me back to I've always been a writer since my teen years and I used to write very much about the depression I had as a teen um, trauma I experienced as a child but I was really a writer in solitude for so many years I never shared that work with anyone and it wasn't until 2017 I think I really started sharing my work with the community and then in 2018, after I started getting a handle on sharing publicly, my sister passed away. It was a pretty significant moment in my life. And it was very natural for me to start writing about that grief and sharing it with the community. And it was a difficult thing to do. But I think through my the way my sister used to encourage me, it allowed me to 
to really branch out and share grief with the community. It happened at a time when in Lake County, we were also healing from a number of years worth of wildfires, and it naturally brought up a lot of grief and trauma for a lot of people. So starting to speak on my grief, I would find that people were coming up to me just in appreciation of sharing grief with each other and being able to hear someone being open about it because we don't always honor grief, especially in a public space. So I think being open and honest and vulnerable with those kind of hard topics with grief, trauma, sometimes violence that's going on in our world, it it has been able to help not only build community, but on an individual level. All of these poets in my community are able to start to write their own poems where, you know, they're going into these deep topics. And I have been hosting a virtual writer circle in Lake County since September 2020, which started during covid And of course, naturally, we meet twice a month, so we experience all of these things together, like, you know, the Ukrainian war, um, all of these different things that are going on in America with the pandemic, with the polarity of politics. So all of these things naturally find their way into our poetry. And I feel like it's, it's a way that we're able to reconcile what's going on in the world and share it with each other. Thank you. So you do explore grief and generational trauma in your work. Do you find that once you've explored a trauma in poetry, that you reach a point of healing? I do. I feel like, specifically in the Mexican culture, sometimes in Latinx cultures, at least in my upbringing and my parents' upbringing, we are often taught not to speak about our trauma. We keep it inside. We're often told, you know, what happens at home stays at home and you don't let those secrets out. So, Acknowledgement is a powerful tool in healing, and to be able to put some of my past traumas in poetry, acknowledging that is the first step in healing in a lot of ways. And it's not just personal healing, but it it really goes into doing the work for generational healing. So I think that's pretty significant. So where were you first published? Uh, yeah. Oh, I was published when I was 16, first time in a magazine called The Puck Review, which is now defunct. It's been away for many years. But it was for young poets, and they would publish photography and poetry. So I had a poem titled Still. That was my first poem ever published. And then around ages, I'd say 17 to 19, I was published in the Record Bee quite often in Lake County, which is the local newspaper. There was a segment called Creative Expressions by then-poet laureate Mary McMillan, Later on, it was taken over by Poet Laureate Richard Schmidt. So I was published there quite a number of times. And then I kind of had a gap where I I really wasn't trying to publish work, just trying to, you know, survive life and get through life and write. And lately, I've been putting in more effort to submit work. So now it's getting published quite more often. What is your submittal process? I feel like I'm still kind of getting into the groove of submitting But what I would typically do is find different literary journals, either some that I'm familiar with or, you know, searching online and trying to find different literary journals, magazines, reviews where I admire their work, their aesthetic, see what kind of other work they're publishing. And if I feel like my work might be a good fit there, then I'll submit if they have an open period. Sometimes I'm also invited to submit. So someone might reach out to me and, you know, say, hey, I like your work. Why don't you submit to us? And And that tends to be a good experience. Do you track your wins and your rejections? I do. I think every writer, we've been talking about this a lot in my writer's group too, about celebrating our rejections because it means we've really made it as a writer. I'm a very organized person, so I tend to use a lot of spreadsheets. So I do track it in a spreadsheet. I have a submissions Excel spreadsheet that I use where I track all of the submissions I've made, when I made them, what poems I submitted, so I'm not doing too many simultaneous submissions. And then I do track whether it's been accepted or or rejected. What would you tell aspiring poets about your submittal experiences? I think it's kind of cliche and, and not everyone always wants to hear it, but I think I would say not to take it too personally if you're rejected. I think it's good to track your wins and rejections and just keep submitting. You know, there's so many resources out there, different literary journals, and there's so many places to be published. Celebrate your wins and, you know, don't don't get too hurt if you do get a rejection. Some of the greatest writers in history were rejected at some point, including Sylvia Plath, who's my all-time favorite poet. We're ready for our second reading. Georgina is going to read The Greatest Brute is Grief. Wonderful. 
This is a poem I wrote at the Mendocino Coast Writers Conference in 2020, the first time I attended. I will give a content warning because the grief is quite heavy in this poem. The greatest brute is grief. In a steaming cup of her favorite Earl Grey, sister was. She is past tense. The iridescent sun on a cold beach brings me back to that scent. Before the end of her time. Before the bergamot and calamity of losing led to anguish pouring itself onto roots of glass-beech trees, a sadness incomprehensible, even in the air of salted waves, which otherwise bring redemption. It will take years of undoing this weight, this composition of tender bones, this freezing in the peripheral of ocean views, this worry of unsettled heights. I hold my palms together, aim head high, yet prayer recedes into the undergrowth never to return with her person. I can't learn to undo this. I walk backwards into the waves. Don't watch me disappear. <sighs> yes, thank you. That was very emotional, and it really hits you right in the heart. Tell me about your full-length work, and where are you in that process? I'm really excited for this question. I've been working on that manuscript pretty heavily for about a year and a half to two years, and it's called The Length of Trauma Covets, which is a line from the first poem I read today. And I would say I'm very close to being finished. I hope to finish it by the end of the year, send it out to some of my my readers who will you know, read through it and see how they feel, give me some feedback, and then I'll start sending it out to some of my dream publishers. Well, I hope that you do too. Everything I've read of yours has been just absolutely amazing. In the meantime, where can people find your poetry? The best place would be my website, georginamariepoet.com. Thank you, Georgina, for joining us on Upwelling. You've been listening to the third episode of Upwelling with local author Emily Lloyd-Jones and Lake County Poet Laureate Georgina Marie Guardado. I'm Michelle Blackwell. Our intro and exit music are provided by Paul Blackwell. To share the show with other listeners, go to kzyx.org or wherever you get your podcasts. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.